0: everyone, welcome to That Triathlon Life Podcast. I'm Paula Finley.
1: I'm Eric Lagerstrom. I'm Nick Goldston.
0: We come to you every week. We are all triathletes, Eric and I are professionals. Nick is an amateur and we love answering your questions, updating us you on our lives, the current happenings in triathlon. And uh, it's a little bit earlier in the evening than we normally record, so we got lots of energy and we're we're excited
2: mic up, hyped up, ready to go. What
1: mic'd up hyped up? Eric, where did that come from? Came to me. That's pretty good.
0: Eric's really good at coming up with like random funny things on in the like out of nowhere.
1: I have not been home for the past like five weekends in a row, and I'm gonna continue it this weekend by going mm. to New York and try to train as much as I can in New York. Let me ask you guys something. My parents have a pool. Is there any reason I should try to actually swim in that pool? It's like a normal sized residential pool. I'd probably get like four strokes in before <laughs> before flipping around. That's
0: giving me some COVID flashbacks. We would like tether ourselves to the post of our Airbnb okay. backyard pool and do some swimming. But it was—is
1: that worth ultimately,
0: it? Ultimately, no, no. It's not that worth was it.
2: like week two of COVID. Week three, it right. was over. When you were like, no, this is going to last
1: two weeks. We got this." Like, we do might they as well sell keep tethers these? on Amazon? How much yeah. are they? I don't care how much they are. Right. Give me all the tethers. Um, but it's like it has. N- you get no feel for the water, right? When you do that, you don't.
2: No, nah, not really.
1: You do
0: get some feel for the water. I actually think that's all you get. It's
2: just a strange feel.
0: You don't mm. get finished
1: slipping through it, which I feel like is a lot of age groupers. Like what we need to work on is being efficient slipping I guess. through the water.
0: Yeah, I, I do think that tethered swimming does have a little bit of a. I mean, you do do the motion of swimming, which ultimately is better than not doing that. So it's better yeah. than nothing. But I'd say for you, just take the weekend off of swimming.
1: Yeah. No, that's... Which you only need to tell me that once for me to follow that direction. That's not going to be a problem. (laughs) Actually, I swam today with my friend Eva. And at the end of the swim, she said, you know, swimming feels really good. And I I had never really thought about it. But compared to biking, like biking in a TT position or running in general, that can be pretty hard on you. Like swimming, it never like... I mean, ideally, it never hurts. Right? it's just hard. But it's just an effort based thing. It's not like this. You're not just I feel like every time I go out running, I'm thinking, okay, don't get injured this time. Like how make sure your things I'm not heel striking or whatever it is to try to keep myself healthy and stretch and activity all this stuff.
0: Less less injury prone for sure. And that's why you see a lot of people that are a little bit older at the pool because it's an activity you can do throughout your life. And I think ultimately is good for just movement and no matter mm-hmm. it can be really, really hard, as we all know. But not that terrible.
1: You just go
2: easy. It's pretty nice.
1: Yeah. Um, okay, so last week we tried something new and we decided that uh, anyone that left an iTunes podcast review in the span of the seven days after the podcast came out would be automatically entered into our uh, raffle to get free bottles. So we went through and the winner from that is Runner802. So if you are Runner802, congratulations, and thank you for the five-star review, by the way. And also, cannot believe the amount of reviews that you all left, so thank you very much. It helps the podcast a lot. We really appreciate it. Uh, but if you are Runner802, just email in at thattriathlonlifebrand at gmail.com, and we will get you your prize.
2: Congratulations.
0: Thank you to everyone who left one. And I don't know, this feels like a bit of a spammy way to get people to review us, but I think they're all positive.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> no
2: i i like i've heard people you know say this on podcasts before and just like youtube videos and it's just like oh man yeah like i do really like this youtube video just like spaced on actually clicking the thumbs up button yeah you know and it's it's not that i don't feel spammed i'm just like oh yeah i just like forgot because i was cooking dinner
0: right it does help us to have good reviews people are more inclined to listen to it right
1: yeah it helps the algorithm it helps recommend the podcast more readily to other people um I mean, that's the thing is other than becoming a podcast supporter, the best thing a listener can do if they, if they like the podcast is send it to your triathlete friends, you know, that's, that's the best thing you can do uh, and leave a review. And so thank you for doing that.
2: I guess unless you want it to remain a secret and just be your podcast and don't tell anybody (laughs) don't like it. Don't leave a comment.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Okay. And we're, we're going to say something else now, too. Last week, we said that once a month we were going to pick a podcast supporter to get free bottles. Well, after some internal deliberation here, we're going to do it once a week and for one bottle.
2: And we're going to throw, I think we're going to throw like a, a decal, like a vinyl transfer in there as well. It won't just be one lonely bottle.
1: Right. Okay. Great. Um, and Eric, do you want to say who the person that we picked this week was? Totally at random.
2: Olena Melnick, Indio, California.
1: Olena Melnick, Kenya, California, you are getting a free bottle this week. Congratulations. And maybe just um confirm uh, at that triathlon life brand at gmail.com that what your actual address is and we'll send that bottle right out to you.
0: This is fun. We just did a random number generator to pick out a podcast subscriber to win a bottle if you're wondering what we're doing. Yep. And if you want to support the podcast, you can go to that triathlonlife.com slash podcast and sign wow. up for 5 or $10 a month. It just helps keep the podcast ad-free. And now we have this fun park of potentially winning a bottle. And we also like to do other fun things that include emails or things that we think of randomly.
1: BT- <laughs> BTS content. For example, for example I am uh, screen recording this right now. I'm trying to do that for every podcast now, just in case anything funny happens. And I think we should include that entire dog. name selection process <laughs> in there because I <laughs> thought that was pretty entertaining.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, especially you can bleep out the f-
1: Definitely. Right, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Get the ble- definitely. get the AI
2: on the bleeping.
1: Definitely. Oh, we need AI bleeping. God. Why is
2: this subscription platform so terrible?
1: <laughs> yes, <it is. laughs> that's right. Um, but I did say the things like, are they in the
0: US? So well, like-
1: <laughs> well, sorry. Yeah, it is
0: kind of funny. It
1: is. Kind yeah, of that's funny. funny. Okay, awesome. Um, so that's that. And then I wanted to, before we talked about anything else, uh, Eric, you're racing Alcatraz this weekend which is a race Mm -hmm. that you did last year and you won last year. Was that your, that was your first one of the year last year. That was your first one in a while. Yeah. Yeah. So how are you feeling about it?
2: I'm feeling pretty good. I uh, don't really seem to get super nervous for races that I've done as many times as I've done Alcatraz. Um, I think I've done it like eight times now or something. I won it in 2015 and then I guess it would be like seven years later, won it last year. So I feel like I have the course pretty dialed and figured out and the competition this year looks pretty good. Ben Knut uh, is unfortunately not going. He's Uh, like kind of, he's the reigning king of Alcatraz now that Andy Potts is a little bit retired from racing that distance. Um, but he's getting, uh, Ben is getting ready for challenge, for challenge Roth. So he won't be there. So it'll be kind of a showdown between me and Jason West and Mark Dubrick will be there. So, uh, my goal is to try to hang with Mark Dubrick on the swim and then just go crazy on the bike, and we'll see what happens. Hopefully, j- it's
0: hopefully it's raining and windy, and yeah, yeah hopefully it's shitty. raining like yeah.
1: last year. It was we were all freezing cold watching you.
2: Yeah, Eric yeah. does well in that. Not good for spectators, but good for me. Yeah. Uh, but Jason West will definitely be the one to beat. He is on fire early season this year, and I'm just kind of hoping that uh, the hills and all the things that make this race challenging will. Take something out of his legs for the run, and he won't run like. You
0: know, like it's also like 25 a twenty-five
2: minute ten k. It's phase. a very broken up course.
0: <laughs> like you have upstairs, downstairs, up the sand ladder, on the sand. So yeah, it kind of is like an adventurous course, and not necessarily someone who's like, yeah, I can run twenty-nine minutes on the track. Like Jason's obviously an amazing runner, but I think that if there's one course that could sway to your advantage a bit. It might be this one.
2: Yeah, possibly. It actually fits the the profile of the course, both on the run and the bike fit really well into the Xterra, a little bit of Xterra specific training that I've uh, done lately right. yeah, with some yeah. punchier hill climbing and stuff. So yeah, I don't know. I'm just excited. It'll be, it'll be really cool. It's always a fun time to go to San Francisco and it's just a beautiful, beautiful race course.
1: There's no way for people to follow along, right? There's no video feed and um, I'm not sure about the tracking. I highly doubt it.
0: The tracking is sometimes um, okay. I mean, you yeah. will be able to tell that he won if he wins.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm not totally sure because it does seem like there's a, a slightly different crew that's putting on the race this year. Still the same organization, but different set of people. So some things could be a little bit different. And yeah, I, I, I don't really know what the viewable things will be on the internet.
1: Right. Okay. Cool. Good luck Eric. We're very excited to watch and we'll some version of a recap next week to see how it went cuz that's I know that's one of your favorite races. Maybe your favorite yeah. road triathlon, right? Or maybe your favorite sure. triathlon in general.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean it's, it probably is my favorite triathlon. It's uh I've got just very good memories. That was kind of like my biggest like uh, winning that race back in 2015 was sort of like my coming out and the world a little bit had an idea of who I was instead right, of just being right. nobody training in nowhere California <laughs>
1: right of course <laughs> uh, cool okay so uh, we're gonna move on to uh, a little segment we call this or that this is or- This is going to be the track and field edition, because I've been getting a little bit more into watching track and field. So you guys are going to have to play, a, a, a stretch your minds out to figure out what you want here. Fortunately, Paula's been
2: doing some track and field viewing lately, so...
1: Oh, wow. I yeah, because we might have to
2: I might have to lean heavily on her.
1: Oh, well, each one of you has to give your own answer for this, but it, oh, was, it was inspired by okay. the 1500 uh, world record just dropped last week. The women's oh, 1500 yeah. world record just came down uh, by a lot, actually. Uh, so for each one of these, there's going to be three questions. And for each one of these, you have to say which one you would want to do and which one you'd rather watch. Okay. So your favorite sprint distance event, which one would you rather do and which one would you rather watch? So like a hundred or a 200, even a 400 or I even would like rather, even the hurdles, even like a hundred hurdles or 110 hurdles.
0: I would rather watch the 400 hurdles for women. Okay. And I would rather do the four hundred hurdles.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, you like the four hundred hurdles.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like that might be the most suited to what I'm. It's the longest of them, and it has yeah some strength component getting over the barrier. So yeah, cool. and it's really fun to watch. I like uh, the two top women in the world right now are like always kind of head to head, back and forth, and mm. I really like that field. So
1: I just watched yeah. her break the world record uh, in Tokyo too. Sydney McLaughlin uh, breaking the Four hundred hurdles world record at the last Olympics. Okay, so Eric, what about you? Four hundred? No. What about what about you? What would you What would you want to do? And what would you want to see?
2: Um, I don't know. I've never even thought about this. Uh, maybe maybe I just might say the hundred for if- both. Yeah, because watching the hundred, it's just it's so intense. Like the buildup and all these guys like standing around, like trying to be macho, and just like right. the amount of pressure that goes into getting everything out of yourself in like eight seconds is just like so foreign to what we do. Where it's like, oh, I had a kind of a crappy swim start, but I've got four hours to right like figure it out and bring it back. So I have a lot of respect for that like mental headspace to to get there. And there's the concept as far as like doing it of, if you did it and you were good at it, of being the fastest human on the planet is is that's pretty cool.
1: (laughs) That is pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Next one. Talk about macho. These, these are the not as macho events. What about your favorite long distance track and field event to, to, to watch and to do if you had to.
0: 1500 for both.
1: Hmm. Paula, consistent. Eric, what about it's you? It's a bit of a middle distance. Yeah, that's kind of mid-distance.
0: Yeah, but I I think I would still classify we'll count it. it in we'll count this it. category. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's like between the 800 and the 1500 for me.
1: Oh, 800 rough.
0: 800 is for sure a middle distance, not long distance. Right.
2: Well, that's, I mean, if we're counting the 1500.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. They're Everything fun, over sprints. It's fun to watch the 1500 because it's very tactical and yeah. it often comes down to the last lap, but watching that world record was just bonkers. It yeah. just got broken for women. Yeah, it was just like yeah.
1: the, the gap between her and the rest of the field was just nuts. Yeah.
0: yeah. And then to me, racing for that kind of like four to five minute range of time is appealing more than a 10K, which is funny oh. since we race for a long time as right. trackers. But <laughs> well, that's
1: probably why.
2: <laughs> yeah. I'd
0: love to do a five minute event.
2: 10K on the track is the last event that I want to do. Very I, long. Having done it before, speaking for personal experience, that just drags on.
1: Well, I was at the track this week because my friend was trying to set a kind of like a, a a mark for his 10K at the beginning of the season and you Facetime me and you're like, wait, your friend is running a time trial 10K on the track for no reason? By themselves. Sounds like the worst thing ever. The worst. Absolute worst idea. <laughs> yeah, that hurts. That
0: hurts.
2: I cannot think of a possible reason to well, justify that.
0: For pacing and it's flat and it's consistent. Yeah, I mean, but
1: it's... you got to hate yourself a little bit to deal with that.
2: I'd happily deal with a slightly inaccurate time on my on my watch, right? Running anywhere but the track,
1: <laughs> right? Um, okay, and then last one: your favorite field event to do and to watch. So like shot, pole put, vault, pull discus, vault, pole vault, yeah, pole vault, pole vault,
0: double pole vault for me. I like wow. watching it, and I want to be able to do
1: it. it looks <laughs> you super want to be flying through the sky, yeah, <laughs> falling down. <laughs> nice,
2: uh, Eric. Um. Vault's really high up there for me as well, but I might just mm-hmm. say triple jump to mix oh, it up. Fun. Yeah, cool. That's just the wildest motion. It's yeah, freaking bo-boom, crazy.
1: Bo-boom, bo-boom. Yeah,
2: and if you've ever tried to do a triple jump, even one time, like you, you will almost break every bone in your body, right? It's such an abrupt, awkward oh, movement.
1: Yeah, that people make it look around. good, amazing. <laughs> cool cool okay well that was fun that was nice uh, well done i wish i had a little more variety between watching and doing from you two but i guess you you like what you like
2: yeah you want to do what you like
1: that's right um so before we get into questions there was a follow-up from last week the question from last week that it's regarding is a question about how much to inflate your tires in an airplane to make sure they don't explode how much to uh, deflate them from right to deflate <laughs> yeah. yes what, like do what inflate psi them is to? safe exactly so jack says uh It's important to know that atmospheric air pressure is 14.7 PSI, so even if the plane became an absolute vacuum, the max your tire could overinflate is an additional 14 PSI, 1.4. In reality, planes are typically pressurized to 11 to 12 PSI-ish, equivalent to 6,000 to 8,000 feet elevation, so if your tire was at 60, it'll be 63. Difference is enough to make your water bottle hiss, but it won't blow a tire. Eric is also entirely correct that gauge pressure is all relative. So as long as you pump it up at the same elevation you race at, then you don't need to adjust anything. Uh, thanks for all you do, Jack. So there you go, Eric. You were completely correct. Um, oh, it feels good. I'm surprised uh, how little of a difference it makes, even if the even if the bike wasn't in a pressurized container. Yeah. Yep. Not that not that big of a deal. Um, okay. Well, I was going to tell everyone where they can submit questions for the podcast, but Paul, you already told them that triathlon life.com slash podcast. So we're just going to move right on. Okay. This is from Eva. Uh, This is for Paula. Wondering how you keep your iron levels high enough to fuel all your training and racing. How often do you test your iron levels? As a female Ironman participant, I find it so hard to keep levels up year over year. So curious to hear how you do it since you train many more hours a week than I do. Thanks and hope you guys come visit Santa Monica again soon. Eva.
0: Okay, so I take an iron supplement daily and...
1: Are we allowed to know what that is? Is it just pure iron?
0: the, The brand that I use are like the whatever I use is called HemaPlex and you can just get it on Amazon. Okay. It's pretty simple. I don't know. I've heard from other athletes that they use it as well. So I think it's pretty safe and actually has kind of a lot of iron in it. I'm just trying to find that information right now. Mm, 85 milligrams. So when I was at altitude, I was taking two a day, which is kind of a lot, but now I just take one a day kind of for maintenance. And I get my blood tested, I try to do it like three or four times a year to make sure that it's not drastically dropping throughout the season. Um, But yeah, it's something I've struggled with in the past, like post-Olympics in 2012, I had an iron test and my iron was like dangerously low, so I had to take a big time off of training. It's something that if you don't keep check on it, it can drop and... That can be really harmful to your performance and just how you feel, energy levels, everything. So I do take a supplement. I think most athletes do. So I'd recommend that.
1: Do you know of anything else that you can do other than taking a supplement to try to keep your iron levels at a healthy place? Like a diet? I or think anything diet else? for
0: sure impacts it. Like if you eat some eat red meat or even like spinach and stuff has some not some iron in it. So eating healthy. But I don't eat an enormous amount of red meat or anything like that. I get most of the iron from supplement uh i don't know this is a tough one
1: well it's funny because i think most people think of iron deficiencies i think they think about women but the last time i got my blood drawn through inside tracker it showed i had very low iron and ferritin levels yeah,
0: yeah.
2: i've had it before as well
1: yeah there you go so my, a friend of mine who is a dietitian recommended uh, an iron supplement for me too mine's called blood builder it has some other stuff in there as well but same concept
0: yeah, Blood Builder has a really low dose, I think. Oh, okay. Compared to HemaPlex. Like I th- I don't know. A lot of them have 18 milligrams. Some of them only have like six or five, so
1: not very much. Oh, so mine here, Blood Builder, is 26 uh, milligrams per, yes, per, per pill, per tablet.
0: Per tablet. Okay, that's pretty good,
1: I guess. But you said yours is 75? 85. 85. Okay, yeah, that's a lot more.
0: But I think... Maybe it's too high. I don't know. This question is so hard because I'm not an expert at this. Right. And when you look at blood results, there's like your ferritin level, your iron level, your hemoglobin, all these things that are like quite confusing to interpret. Yeah. And they work together, Which should be high and which below. Yeah. And they all work together. So I think my advice would be to talk to a nutritionist or dietitian or a doctor even to know which levels need to be improved and what you can do to improve them and how many milligrams you should be taking per day, knowing that you're an athlete Um, versus, yeah, versus listening to the pod.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's possible. Like you'd be taking a lot of iron, but you're not absorbing it. And what's the reason for that? And yeah, yeah. It's a whole thing. And everybody's a little different on how well they absorb.
1: Yeah. I remember learning about that. That you can't, it's like, you can't just take it and it, and it fixes it. People's bodies absorb it so differently. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, next question here is from Lucy. Hello, huge fan of the pod and day one My question is around my sports watch training status and VO2 max estimate. How much attention, if any, should we be paying attention to this? Mine has steadily been declining for a month now. Is this a warning sign, or should these algorithms be completely ignored if I otherwise feel fine in training? Lucy, I already know what you two are going to say, but go go right ahead.
0: No. You, well, Eric, you can go.
2: I got. I just got a little like lightheaded for dinner time. Um, Talking about the iron, maybe <laughs> it's the weather. Like her, v, the Garmin is telling her, her VO two max so, is going lower.
1: Yeah, so Garmin will tell you your training status. So like it'll say, you know, maintaining or productive or peaking or strained or detraining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, or unproductive. You know.
0: Yeah, she actually wrote Garmin in this, but I switched it to Sports Watch. Okay, but I guess it. we could keep it at Garmin because I think that this is a completely stupid thing that it does.
1: And wahoos See, I knew don't do were it. you going to say that.
0: <laughs> wahoos don't do it. Obviously, there's some like scientific data background that's allowing it to do this. But I think we've talked about this on the podcast before when like a professional athlete is doing a session and it tells you after that you're unproductive. It's like, compared to what? <laughs> I right. don't know. I think it, sometimes it doesn't really have a frame of reference of what your goals are, anything really about you besides what your heart rate is. So it's, and your activity load, obviously. Yeah. It's
2: not your coach. It doesn't know that this is intentionally a rest week or intentionally a big bike week. Yeah. Right. But it's like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a thing that's like entertaining. It's like, oh, look, I got a, I got a course record on Strava and my training's unproductive. That's fun. <laughs> Moving on. I, I
1: think I think it's cool. personally I like to use it in tandem with how I'm feeling as 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 a somewhat of a guide. And if I'm feeling worse and worse and I see that my VO2 max number is consistently dropping, then I'm like, "Oh, okay, interesting." But if I'm feeling fine and training well, it's like you said, it's it, it it doesn't know everything, and sometimes there's functional overreaching. That's good, and you don't want to necessarily yeah. let off the gas just because your watch is telling you this or that. I mean, anecdotally, also, I was just at altitude, and my VO two max running went from like sixty three to fifty seven, according to Garmin. Mm. So, yeah, you know, how's it deciding probably,
2: what your VO two max is in real time, anyway?
1: It uses data. Um, it tries to it draws conclusions without actually ever testing your
2: your ventilatory exchange.
1: Yeah. exactly so it just it goes by how fast you're going how much you weigh um and then it tries to compare that to your heart rate uh, Mm -hmm. and and tries to draw conclusions and it's it's somewhat accurate but you can't compare it to like other people (laughs) and yeah and and i still think it should be a a general thing you you know not don't sit there staring at after every workout wondering why it's not going up right right yeah
0: and do you wear it for all three sessions? I guess that would be the other thing.
1: Yeah, you're using uh, it to
0: swim, bike, and run, so it's accounting for all that.
1: Yeah, Garmin does not calculate your swim VO2 max, but it does calculate your bike and your run VO2 max separately, and gives you two separate scores for it. Gotcha. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I would say don't get don't get attached to it in any way. Use it as yeah. a fun tool. If use you it
1: as to. a fun tool. That's that's how. Can I you use turn it, it off? Can you say, like, I don't yeah, want you, to can, this? you can, you can, you can, you can, you can get that turn your, it off. I think your training doesn't it. contribute to those, uh, those scores. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But it's, I like it. It's fun. And mine is always telling me I'm doing terribly. So I, I like to prove it wrong.
2: You're a very positive <laughs> person, though. Like, you can handle this watch telling you you're getting, slow. I just laugh.
1: I laugh at it. Um, <laughs> Okay, next question here. Hi, guys. Disclaimer, I'm not a triathlete or endurance athlete, but my wife is, and she loves your podcast and listens to it while making dinner. So by proxy, I'm also a huge fan. Now for my question. She's making the switch from running marathons to triathlons. I've gotten pretty good at spectating and supporting her at run events, but what do I need to know about being support spouse for triathlons? Seems like the logistics are more complicated. Any tips? Thanks, J.D. That's a fun question.
0: Yeah, I like this one. It's like kind of from the other side. Yeah. Um, other I gotta
2: I gotta side. say I I love being support. Yeah, I it's think it's pretty fun. I
0: think it's more a little bit more logistically challenging, but also the opportunity for spectator, like seeing the athlete come by is usually higher because they're naturally they're doing two transitions. You see them start the swim, finish the swim, start the bike, finish the bike. Versus in a running race, they could just go off on a looped course and you never see them until the end yeah. or you're trying to chase them down. So depending on the distance of the race, I think there's a lot of opportunity even just to plant yourself in one spot and see them several times, which I think is is really fun. And depending on their goals, I think the biggest thing you can do as a support person is just encouragement but sometimes people like splits. Some you just have to like talk to her and see what what kind of information she wants, if anything, or if it's just cheering, because that's the most helpful thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it is possible
2: you that know, you could like have the Iron Man like tracker app pulled up on your phone and know that she's running a little faster than someone who's in front of her, and, yeah. and give her that information. You know that can that can be helpful.
0: Yeah. The other thing is. Um, you're not really supposed to... Well, I I know you're not supposed to do this, is give outside aid. So in terms of like handing extra nutrition, handing extra bottles, riding beside them even is not allowed. So just be careful with that. Especially like in the pro race, we have to be careful of this. If Eric's out filming me in a race, he can't really ride beside me for any significant amount of time because that can be considered pacing me or outside assistance.
1: Oh, That's not allowed. This just happened to friends of a friend. These two triathletes I'm friends with here... Their friend was racing Victoria, and she I think she was going to get second overall, uh, but her boyfriend was racing, and he pulled out of the bike or something and then ran one last lap with her on the run mm, while well, he was well, he had DNF'd, lot. and oh, so no. she got DQ'd for that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah a lot of people tough. don't really know that rule. Um, I mean, the guy that came to help film me in Chattanooga was riding beside me filming for a bit, and I had to tell him to stop because I'm like— I know you're not assisting me, but you can't do that.
1: So yeah. please drop back.
0: But he didn't know, so it's just a thing people aren't really aware of.
1: Well, I just I just wanted to say one more thing about that because I feel like there's a lot of beginner triathletes that listen to this. Mm-hmm. You can't accept any help from anyone. On the course, like no one can run any part of it with you. You can't run with your baby across the finish line. Like, you know, you can't grab the baby from your wife at the end and run across the finish line. Like the Ironman has historically been very, very strict about that stuff. So we don't want anyone Mm -hmm. to achieve their life goal just to be DQ'd uh, at the end.
0: It might yeah. be more more lax in like a local race or yeah oh, a non Ironman sure. brand race, but that's that is the rule of Ironman. Yeah,
2: yeah. As far as as far as like the morning thing, Paula was going there. If you can be with your person in the morning and just like be there in case they need to hand you um, like their jacket just before they walk into the water, or you can have a towel for them if they want to do a swim warm up, or just like stuff goes wrong. So if you can be around transition with like a multi tool and a pump and a a tube or just like a water bottle any of these things that can if they come up to you and like oh do you need a drink of water like oh yeah actually i couldn't find any like there's a lot more gear
0: than in a marathon yeah so you're just gonna have like bags and stuff to throw and stuff to like dispose of before the start and just organizing your transition area so the number of things to Mm -hmm. remember are quite a lot higher so
1: yeah. The things that come to mind for me, if I were to give advice to someone who hasn't done this yet, is that as a supporter, you can't uh you can't go into the transition area where all the bikes are unless you're an athlete on race on race morning. So yep. you you can't get in there and set up their spot. They have to do it themselves. Also, a lot of the times, I'm trying to think of like things like Indian wells, where if like you're parked in there in the morning, you can't get out of there until like two and a half hours after the swim starts, right? Because mm-hmm. of like weird traffic congestion. I feel like in a marathon, it's kind of more simple. It's like Start point, end point. So like pay attention to road closures.
0: Yep. Especially with a double transition.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But otherwise it's really fun and it's I mean
0: <laughs> But otherwise have a blast. Drafton's I mean, fun when you're
1: a spectator. It's fun to watch. I think compared to a marathon, it is more fun to watch because you get to see kind of three different sports. And a lot of courses will have points where you can stand and see like someone on the bike two or even four times. Or yep. see someone on a run like maybe like six times. Like there were there were parts in Morro Bay where you could stand and see the same athlete six times. Mm-hmm. So,
2: mm-hmm. I do think it's it's sweet if you can have like an e bike or just any sort of bike uh, to get to be around able to easy. get to different parts on the yeah. run course to just be seen as many parts as possible? Because there's there's oftentimes parts on run courses where nobody goes to because they're kind of remote, and seeing somebody there is is a huge boost.
1: Yeah. Um, Okay, Uh, next question here is from Rich. Hey, guys, I have a quick question regarding water bottle storage when on the bike. Uh Uh-oh, I can feel this. This one's going to go into crazy territory. Uh, When in the aero position, is there any aero penalty to running a water bottle in the rear jersey pocket, or is it more aero to shove it down the front of the tri-suit? Thanks for your input.
2: Don't shove anything down your tri-suit. It should be (laughs) illegal in all (laughs)
1: countries. Um, I've gone
0: down like a huge rabbit hole this last couple of weeks of... What's the benefit? Because you see all these athletes now putting things down the front of their jersey, not to store the bottle for use necessarily, but because when you fill that gap, it's theoretically aerodynamically faster. And it's proven, actually. So
1: what you're saying is, my donut and cookie consumption maybe making me more aerodynamic.
0: Yeah, if you have a... Well, I don't know if it's like your gut or like the upper area, like your
1: chest. The air doesn't know the difference. If I start, my torso gets bigger and bigger. I'm getting more and more aerodynamic. Oh,
2: yeah, maybe. I I think it's important, you know, that, that to me right there, that is the important thing is you need to test it for yourself. Just because it's faster for Joe Skipper doesn't mean it's faster for you. And he has tested... How far down it is or is it right right, touching his chin or what size bottle is it? Is is that, you know, a whole bunch of different things.
1: I didn't realize that it was more aerodynamic. I thought it was just, it's it's the, the place that you can put it that's the most, that's the least affecting your aerodynamics. But you're saying it's actually faster than not having it there.
0: Yeah, oh, Nick. That's, that's a lot the of, latest thing. A lot of wow. between
2: the bars bottles have had that effect as well, just because it's filling in space that yeah. air can't swirl.
0: Yeah. So if this person's specifically asking, I have an extra bottle, do I put it mm. in my the back or the front? I guess put it in the front because everyone's doing it.
1: Well, putting it in the back jersey pocket is for no. sure a huge aerodynamic penalty. Yeah. I would so. I would imagine. Like this thing sticking out of your back, <laughs> kind of like catching the wind.
0: Yeah. Yeah, shove it down your jersey or just put another bottle cage behind your saddle. <laughs> if you want to be the coolest.
1: Yeah. Eric, yeah. What, what would you do here?
2: Yeah, one between your forearms and one behind the saddle.
1: And nothing on the down tube? Nope. Um, oh, here's alleg- a question for Allegedly,
2: Eric. according to when we were at the Specialized the Wind Tunnel, they said that an arrow... like an arrow bottle on On the down down tube tube had no impact. It wasn't a penalty. It wasn't faster. Right. So that seems like a
1: great idea. They they just—they don't hold much water.
2: They don't hold much water and a lot of people struggle to get them in and out. So I think the goal, the best thing you can do is have one between your arrow bars and one behind your saddle, unless you're cool with this sloshy mess in your chest.
0: (laughs) I was going to say, do not put a round bottle on your down tube. That is slower.
1: Right. Right. 100%. That's definitely slower. Uh, Okay, cool. Uh, Next question here is from Daphne. Hello, TTL from Canada. Proud supporter. I'm relatively new to triathlon, three years, and just recently traveled to Victoria 70.3 from Calgary and managed to damage my bike rotors due to my inexperience in packing. Okay, this is kind of a long one, but I do think it's a great question. This is the first time I've traveled to an event and I borrowed the Thule Sport clamshell hard case from a friend. I think that the case may have also been too small for my bike width-wise. I have a Quintana Roo tri-bike with disc brakes that has a decent flare at the rear of the bike. I felt like I was pushing down onto the frame as I was clinching the case together. I know you have mentioned you've used many cases and some you're not quite fond of. Can you recommend a case that truly protects our tri-bikes and any tips for an excellent packing job? When I look at a soft shell case, I just don't see how they protect the bike when airlines are stacking the bikes flat. Am I missing something? I assume that the hard shell cases are the way to go, correct? Correct. Always look forward to the weekly YouTube and podcast. Good luck with your season, everyone regards Daphne. <laughs> so there's a lot of things here.
0: Eric, are you tired of are you tired of answering bike bag questions? That's
1: <laughs> well, like
2: eight questions in one. Let's do it.
1: <laughs> yeah. So let's let's start with this. Are the hard shell cases the way to go? And if so, why or why not?
2: Um I I wouldn't say as a rule of thumb that they are. No.
0: The hard shell cases, I think the only one you would consider is bike box Allen in terms of packing it easily.
2: Yeah. The, the thing with like the Thule that you use, like the round trip or whatever they call that, is like you have to dismantle your bike so far. Yeah. And then TSA is going to open that thing up, pull all the padding out, pull your shoes out, look for bombs, and then they're just going to throw it back in there. And then like someone's going to sit on it to get it to close <laughs> as they strap it back together. <laughs> I have witnessed it with my own eyes. So the wow. ups the upside of the soft bags, like the Sycon is... There's plenty of room in there. It's very to see, easy to see inside. And it's almost impossible for them to like put it back together wrong. Yeah. So yes, maybe it's, it's going to get piled up. But I like to think that they put the softer stuff closer to the top. And if you've got a hard case, they're putting everything on top of that hard case. Yeah. That's the big thing
1: I've heard you guys yeah. talk about a lot is that- With your bike in there incorrectly. Right, <laughs> right. Is that of course the hard shell case is safer if the amount of pressure and damage is the same as a soft shell case, but they're they usually treat them very different. That's the that's the issue. Yeah. So that's the first thing. The second thing is any tips for actually packing the bike. So I know, for example, you guys do like a cardboard cutout that's like the shape of the wheel that you put on either sides of the wheel to give it a little extra padding. But is there anything else that you do that you think is a good rule of thumb? Like, should you take the derailleur? I personally
0: taking the derailleur off for sure. Taking the rotors off the wheels is an easy thing to do that will prevent them from potentially getting bent, which is ruins them. Yeah, Um, I like to wrap the bike in bubble wrap or in foam tubing. Eric doesn't think that helps, but I just even if it's mental and peace of mind, I think it it's got to help a little bit. Eric's like, if someone's sitting on it, bubble wrap's not going to help. Okay, maybe, (laughs) but if it gets like. Knocked or scratched by something inside. I don't know. I think it can make a difference, and it it doesn't take much extra time to do that. So, the le, the in uh, the bikes boxes we use are the Saicon, the Evoc Pro, and the Thule soft case round trip. Yeah,
2: it's like semi soft,
0: and they're all great, but they all have cons as well. The Evoc Pro is enormous; that's its con, and it's really it cumbersome a to deal with, and it weighs a lot. The Sycon is probably the least protective of them all, but it's, I'd say, the easiest to pack. Yeah. And then yours requires more disassembly than the other two.
2: Yeah. The Thule requires a bit more disassembly. <laughs> I have not used it for a tri-bike yet because you have to take the handlebars off, like the, the actual base bar. But for the mountain oh, bike, it's fantastic, amazing. and I f- freaking love it so yeah. much. Yeah,
0: it's very, very protective, I think. Yeah. A lot of the—all the, these bike bags are putting the wheels on the outside, and that kind of does have a protective effect for the mm-hmm. bike. So if it does get impact, it's not directly onto the frame. It's often onto like the wheels and the hub absorbs it a little bit. So I don't know. It's always a gamble, but we don't have a choice. So I think you just have to send it down to the plane and forget about it almost. And I've had a frame crack. Derek's had a frame crack. It's kind of part of it. You cross your fingers and you do the best you can, but you don't really know how they're going to treat it.
1: Maybe one pro tip would be to put an air tag in there though. As with anyone. <laughs> no, that you check. Eric's also anti air tech. Anti-that. Really? Why is that, Eric? You just like, it's just extra stress and it doesn't make yeah. any difference. Yeah.
2: From the second that we drop our bags off to this, like 15 hours later when we actually arrive at our destination, Paul is like hitting refresh, hitting refresh, hitting refresh. Like, they haven't moved. They haven't moved. They haven't moved. Right until three minutes before we're supposed to take off. Boom. They're magically in the plane every single time. And she's dressed <laughs> for nothing. <laughs> like, or just make yourself a rule that you're not going to look at it right. until you're standing. Waiting to pick it up at baggage collection. Yeah.
0: I don't think they're a bad thing to have in there unless you're obsessively looking at it, but it is miraculous that sometimes like we I have one in our suitcases and in our bike cases. And sometimes the suitcases will be like right underneath us on the airplane and the bikes are like two kilometers away and the other (laughs) in the other terminal. And And then literally right before we take off, they're just magically there. And it's not because the thing hasn't refreshed. It's like they actually move that quickly.
2: That's the timeline wow. they're operating on. Yeah. It's that tight.
0: It's it's actually like what AirTags have shown me is the impressiveness of the efficiency of baggage maneuvering in airports.
2: Guys, <laughs> just be understanding when your bags get lost, because it is a freaking miracle yeah. every time they don't get <laughs> yeah. lost. So amazing.
1: <laughs> you know how many bags they have? They all look exactly the same. It, it is
2: mind-blowing. <laughs> <laughs> just think about that organization. Oh, yeah. man,
1: crazy. Okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, so the, the short answer is that there is no one bag that is the best of all. Uh, that's what <laughs> you're saying, right?
0: Yeah, and I wish there was, because I get asked this question like, All the time. What bike bag should I get? I don't know. They all suck, but you just have to pick the one (laughs) that sucks
1: the least, I guess. Yeah, I really like mine, the the Evoc uh, Road Bike Bag Pro, but it is humongous, like you said.
2: (laughs) It's so big. It It is the biggest pain in the ass. Really, really big in so many ways.
1: I I hate that thing. Sorry. Um, Okay, next question is from Ryan. Hey guys, today I read up on athlete psychology because I've been feeling really shitty after my 70.3 for no real explicable reason. I read out that there's something called post-race depression, PRD, where basically it's almost an unavoidable depression for some due to the extreme amount of focus and energy put into training for a big race. Then when it's over, you feel left in a void of what now? I also read that battling on and training through it only adds to it. And so I took the decision to put triathlon down for a little while until the cloud passes. I'm deeply saddened to make the decision, but I'm curious as to whether any of you guys get the same feeling. How do pros go from race to race and not experience the same struggles? Thanks for everything, guys. I'll continue to listen to the pod as I love it. Ryan. This is post-race blues. And do you feel like you guys racing often actually helps this? Like, it's like, well, we race like 10 times a year. We don't have time like to, to... up we don't all have this time emotions. for the blues. We
0: just kind of yeah. freaking put a smile on our faces. <laughs> no, that is not true.
2: That's crazy that we got a word for this now. But yeah, 100% yes, this is a real thing. I think it's more intense uh, the bigger the race and the better the result. Like for us anyway, like there's this big hype period and the fighting chance videos by iron man and everything's like so crazy. And then afterwards you're having to like answer all the thumbs up, the comments and and respond to people and people are texting you about your great result. And then like three days later, all of a sudden it's just like, boom, you're exhausted and the floor falls out and it takes like five days for you to want to do anything.
0: And and you're just tired.
2: Yeah. And just tired.
0: Yeah, what Eric was saying is the bigger the race, the more this effect can kind of take place. And I think for a lot of amateur athletes, you're not racing that frequently in the year. So you have this big goal. It's everything that you're dedicated to for months and months leading in. It happens and then it's over. And now what? So definitely having another race somewhere on the horizon can help with that just to refocus and reset and go through the build process of training again. But I personally... I do get this feeling, but I like taking a week of just like total chill, don't have to do anything if I don't want to in terms of training. Um, I kind of look forward to that post-race.
2: 100%. So
0: reframing it that way and not being sad and missing it. Because personally, I put so much pressure on myself. The lead up to races is extremely stressful to me. So to have it be over is almost more of a relief than a sad feeling. The one time where this really, really affected me was post-Olympics because you're really your whole life for like four years is dedicated to this one race. And the race happens in two hours and it's over. And then the Olympics is over and no one cares anymore. So it impacted me a lot back then and took me maybe two years to even get out of that hole. And meanwhile, I was still racing and trying to train through it, but it was really difficult. My results weren't good. I was not healthy, so. On the big scale like that, I think it's pretty common for athletes to experience that. And I don't know. I don't feel like I'm just talking and talking, but you're crushing it. <laughs> it's I don't know I agree necessarily how to get out of it besides switching your focus and finding a new passion or hobby or something else to focus your time on, whether that's spending more time with your family or just choosing one of the three sports to do for exercise. Like running is very convenient. Maybe just do that three times a week to to feel like you're still out and moving and not just stopping cold turkey after the race is over.
1: Yeah. I, I kind of wanted to take this opportunity to talk about the opposite of this since I, I don't I've never had this, the post-race blues or post-race depression, but I have had major struggles with Paula, what you were just talking about, which is before the race, the week leading up to the race. Um, and I, you know, I hope I, I I would hope that if I raced more or if I was as good as you guys were. Uh, at the sport, that I would have found a way around this, but it sounds like it just follows you wherever you go, right? Like, doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how how much you're used to the pressure, you still struggle with this, right? And have you found things that help you with it? Cause I'm just thinking back to Morrow Bay. You know, I, I it, those days before the race were miserable and made the race almost not worth it for me. How, how hard I was, I, and I'm not even sure where it comes from. I don't know if it's pressure I put on myself, but it's just this like looming like dread um,
2: it's just a fact of doing something that you really care about like if if you worked in an office and you had to give a presentation to the entire company you would get nervous about that or if you had to present at a conference or well you know name your thing in whatever um <laughs> Glenn is breathing hot air on my neck <laughs> um and whatever space that you're that you're working in, so I I think you just need to kind of remember that that like hey I I'm nervous and it's okay because I care, and for me personally I try to shift my brain into this space of like, you know what I I don't know what's going to happen there's 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 nothing that says that I should do this or that I should perform at this level because. I've been doing this long enough and I've had great training blocks and then terrible races and I've had training blocks that were unexciting and then great races and you just gotta like, hopefully maybe me saying that will help some people to realize like, just get out of the space of like, I need to do this because my training indicates this and rather go out and just like find out what you have that day. Like try to open yourself up to like anything could happen. I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna do my best and I'm gonna see what, what I come away with.
1: That, and that helps you, Eric, to like quiet that feeling a little bit.
2: Totally. I just, I, I legitimately see every race as like an opportunity to go out and learn something about myself. And the thing I could learn that I'm w- way faster than I was last time I did this race or whatever, or that like I have something special inside of me that allowed me to elevate above what I thought was possible. Or I could find out that I was too tired. And then I'll go back and I'll fix it for the next race. And that's like kind of what's beautiful about the sport is that we're all just trying to get better each day, each race, and improve. And you're on this journey of like self improvement. And a bad race isn't like a failure of what you're doing rather than like one part of the process.
1: I think I'm realizing for me that it might have to do with the duration of the race. Cause like for short races, I don't get nervous. I'm just excited. But for 70.3 or longer, it might just be, I'm I'm just dreading the amount of pain <laughs> that the race is going to be. You just got to take be. it piece by piece. Yeah. Not yeah. Piece by piece. Don't think, don't think about the Don't think about the
0: run before you've started. Yeah. But I'm thinking back towards this person's question specifically because after race, blues is totally different than pre-race anxiety. Yeah. And I can imagine being in this funk post-race where you just like the last thing you want to do is get out the door. But... I do think that just getting out the door and doing some kind of swim, bike, run activity might actually help you get over it. Because I always feel better if I go for an easy bike ride or an easy swim or an easy run. And even in our post-race week where we don't have to train at all, we still end up training because it makes us feel good. We have mental clarity. We can do other things in the day that are more productive when we're, we've are we exercised. So your body becomes so used to that exercising, maybe excessive exercise when you're training for a race, but after the race is over, as much as you maybe mentally don't want to do it, um, for this person who says they're just going to move on from triathlon completely, which is totally okay, you still have to incorporate some activity into your day-to-day life. And I think that will help with the blues in general. So I don't yeah. know. I was just thinking about that as you guys were talking about pre-race anxiety <laughs> It's like, how, what would I do? Oh, I'd probably go train, <laughs> which yeah. is so backwards. But I think it, it's really what we're all wired to do if you're listening to this podcast. So it is something that will help.
2: I think my favorite thing to do in the, in the week after the race is go to the pool and swim as little as I want. It uh, feels so nice and indulgent. Like I'm going to the pool for an hour. I might swim for 10 minutes. I'm going to swim somewhere between 1K and 2K and I'm going to sit on the deck, and look at the water for a while and I'll play with my paddles and I'm just going to like float around and that just feels so good. But then the next day, I kind of want to go do a real swim.
1: It's like the executive workout. I cannot believe you just used the word indulgent and pool in the same sentence, Eric.
2: No, I mean, I've said this before. It's the same thing with when we're on off season. We absolutely don't have to swim. Just mm-hmm. going and like, Feeling the water a little bit, yeah. doing only 50s, nothing over a 50. Yeah. Doing one paddle, the other paddle, playing, putting on my flippers for the first time in six months.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. right. It just feels kind of fun. Okay, great. Next question here is it's not a bike tech with Eric question, but it could be. Uh, this is from Garrett. Hey, TTL gang, I have a do it all bike with a two by SRAM axis group set and two wheel sets, one for gravel and the other for road. The gravel wheel set has a 1036 cassette, and the road wheel set has a 1028 cassette. If I size my chain to fit the 1036 cassette, am I okay to ride the same chain on a 1028 cassette? Is there any situation where I would need to swap chains when I swap wheels? So, first of all, it dep- Just for people who aren't this specific person, Garrett, I would imagine it matters very much which direction you're going. If your chain is set up for a 1028 on a road bike, and then you put a 1036 cassette. That's different than having the bike come with a 1036 cassette and then trying to put a 1028 on there. But do you think there yeah. would be too much slack, Eric? Yeah, that's that. I guess that would work. I
2: think it would. I think it would work. I, it's n- it's probably not going to shift the best just because of how far that top pulley is away from the cassette at the at, oh, the, at, the, at the that 28? high end. Yeah, yeah. But there there's an adjustment that you can make to accommodate for that. Um, and yeah, the, the only, I think it would be more of an issue with the chain being too sloppy. If you were in the small ring in the front and the small ring in the back Qu- towards the end, you'd have a floppy chain.
1: But if it's 10, it's 36 not, or ten twenty eight, that has
2: more to do with the, the 10 or the 11, not the, yeah. the big one.
1: Yeah. But that's interesting. Th-
2: th- yeah. I, I, I would say it's, yeah, I'm just curious if the derailleur is meant to do that. If it can really handle that big of a of a range. I think the I think the Explorer can handle that. But I would look at what you need to adjust to optimize the shifting with that cassette size.
0: <laughs> that went right over that went right over my head. <laughs> good, I honestly good. Like, don't even know what they were asking. I bet you for a lot of people it also did. So
1: well, hopefully for Garrett, we helped Garrett. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we did. <laughs> um,
1: Eric's clapping. Um, okay, next question here is from Emma. Uh, hey guys, longtime listener here, and I love the pod about the race recaps. Please do these more. I have a question about power on Zwift compared to out on the road. I find my power on Zwift is quite a lot lower, thirty to forty watts, than when I ride outside. I connect my bike's power meter to Zwift as I find my Wahoo Kicker Core's trainer power to be even more inaccurate and lower. Just wondering if this is something you or anyone you know has struggled with or if you have any idea why this may be. Thanks, Emma. Yeah, for sure. But I'll let you guys go ahead and talk about this because I have a a complicated relationship with a trainer as it is.
0: (laughs) Zwift power compared to your power meter power being different?
2: Your, power, your, uh, your watts are going to be the same since it's your power meter, but I'm definitely in the team. It feels way harder indoors for me to do race perceived power exertion than it does outside, even though the watts God, don't what lie. what is
1: that? What is that? Are we that weak that just like nature flying by dulls the pain? No, it's
0: not just the visual. It's like the feeling of the bike, especially for Eric. He's very dynamic. He likes to get out of the saddle and ride the rollers and push on the downhills and you don't get that feeling on Zwift uh, when you're stationary. Whereas I am more of an athlete that's pretty immobile on my bike outside. So riding Zwift or riding on the kicker doesn't really change my watts that much.
2: Yeah, Paula's like a statue. It's hard to tell when she's racing, like if she's trying hard or if she's not trying hard or what. No no no, just I'm like it's amazing. I'm impressed. I'm not it's not it a bad thing. But it, but it, it is but amazing. But it's because you're just so rock solid on the bike. It's a good
0: question though. Like if you take your if you say you can't do your workout outside, so you take it inside to the trainer and you're pushing mm-hmm. 30 watts less because mentally or physiologically you can't get to that place where you can get to outside, are you getting less good of a workout? Okay. I would say you are. Getting less good of a workout. Of course yes, <laughs> you are.
1: Yeah, of yeah. course.
0: You're pushing thirty watts less, so you're not getting the same benefits. Um, even if mentally you had to go just as deep. Mm-hmm. So there's. So what do
1: you do though? <sighs> what do you do? You do you decrease the workout by thirty to forty watts and still do the the workout as prescribed? Do you shorten the workout or do thirty you to try forty to do watts else? is
0: excessive? Like that That's is a, a huge difference. I would say ten watts maybe. Eric has a difference. Yeah. So like I just think, I think you just need to do it more and you get used to it and you you kind of learn the tricks or whatever, get better music, get a fan, anything you can do to make the environment more comfortable. This is but not 30 to Emma 40 watts is insane.
2: My, my, I'm curious. Is the kicker core, I don't actually know. Is it a tire on tire one or is it a direct no. drive? Oh, okay. Well, because I, I was going to say that typically the the ones that drag against your tire... Are harder, are even more terrible feeling. So, so that, so that's good anyway.
0: Yeah, direct drive trainers make it more road feely. Yeah, and you can shift. And that'd be another thing is maybe try not riding in an erg mode. Ride it so that on Zwift, it's naturally riding the ups and downs and does have a little bit of road feel, so you can actually shift and be a bit more dynamic yep. as if you're riding outside. You
2: can go five watts over and and then five watts under, and and you can float around a little bit. I cannot, absolutely cannot do my workouts on the erg mode. I have to it like just crushes ride. you mentally. Yeah. I just like look at the hills and I like think about riding up a hill and I shift to change the intensity level. And that that helps me yeah. a lot. So mm.
0: did this person say they're on Zwift specifically or yeah. yes. Oh they are? Yeah. Okay. Well yeah. that's good. Mm-hmm. That's good. I think that there's so many different ways to use Zwift and everyone has a different preference of how how they want to use it. If they yeah. want to jump into a Actually, a good advice for this person would be to jump into some of like the group workouts that they have on Zwift programmed or a race. Because I think that you can get more out of yourself if you're with other people on Zwift. It yeah. feels like you're kind of mm. part of a community or group. Same thing with going to master Swimming. It just adds this extra element if I'm not just sitting here in my garage doing this solo.
2: Yeah, you're looking at something besides, oh, am I at 360 watts or yeah. 361 or 360 <laughs> watt and two you'll, you'll or will
0: you'll work harder than you would on your own yeah. Um. by nature of being in kind of a virtual race, which is really cool.
2: Yeah. The last, Even thing, if,
0: yeah, the last
2: thing I'll say is that if I'm trying to do like five by 10 or like whatever, something by 10, and I just cannot, I'll try to do it broken and I'll do like five minutes, give myself one minute to like,
0: reset. The reset. Oh, okay.
2: Maybe not fully, but if I'm trying to do 300, I'll do like 250 for one minute and then I'll try to like get last back. four minutes, bring it back. And so like you break it up just a little bit, just don't get to like the total time and watts, but yeah, however you can break it up to make it possible.
1: It is amazing how much breaking it up in general helps mentally. Like even when you're swimming, like taking a 10 second break can just yeah, make that not, interval feel so much better.
2: It's not ultimately the same workout, but I think it's better than just doing 10 minutes at 40 watts less.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: And to wrap it up, I would say that imagine if you got good at this, how strong you'll be outside.
1: (laughs) That's the hope. Uh, Yeah, that's the hope. It 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 really, really makes you strong. (laughs) Or you die. It it really makes you strong. It really kills you or you get stronger. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. Last question here is from Jared. I'm an age group triathlete who loves 70.3 and full distance races, but training has gotten to me and I want to get out and just have some more fun. That's relevant to our last question too. Uh, Many of my friends are mountain biking and I'm wanting to join them. Curious what type of mountain bike you'd recommend and what to look for. I'd like something that would work for Xterra races as I might want to give them a try. I've got about two to 4K budget, overwhelmed with the options and would love to hear what you guys think. Jared.
2: For Xterra, you can get a pure cross country bike. I would go with a full suspension just because it allows you to pedal over bumpy stuff. It's not necessarily about descending, but just Continuing to put out power while going over routes and stuff. Um, but you definitely don't need something that's like 150 millimeters, 160 millimeters of travel, like 100 to 120, totally sufficient and will be faster for next era if you're interested in racing.
1: The cool thing about that too is that I think I was under the wrong impression that if you, had wanted to do any kind of like real jumps, you needed like at least a trail bike and then up onto a, like an enduro bike or a downhill bike. But then riding with you and Curtis, who are like Curtis was a professional triathlete as well, an exterior athlete, and you are obviously an exterior athlete as well. I saw you guys do some jumps and I even saw you in like a photo do like a big drop on your cross country bike. So you can still have a lot of fun and do some pretty gnarly stuff even though it's a cross-country bike. So I feel like for anyone yeah. who's getting into it for the first time, there's really no reason to go above that, at least for now, right?
2: Yeah, the only reason would be if you truly want to do downhill things. And right. it's, you live in a place where it's really rocky and really steep, but I, I'm not getting the vibe out of this. Yeah. You can certainly, I mean, dirt jumpers have like, a little tiny front fork. Otherwise they're like a ish BMX bike and those guys are going 15, 20 feet in the air. So it's
1: yeah, exactly. certainly
2: not a jump issue, but like a bigger bike with more suspension will like allow you to make more mistakes and still do the same thing. But you know, like Ken Block driving a Honda Civic will be faster than somebody driving a, a, a Ferrari. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, not, yeah, just because of like some skills. So just like, yeah, I would say like, look at the Epic, series from specialized that's what i have good experience with incredible bikes and they have this thing called the brain which will actually unlock or lock itself so you don't even have to worry about like is your fork locked out or not that's a very cool feature and if you look at just the regular epic the the full suspension that's like a very good cross-country race bike and then they have the epic evo which is a slightly more has slightly more suspension and a lot of people end up liking that just because it's a little squishier You can go over more stuff, but it still pedals really well.
1: And what other things in a mountain bike, someone who's never bought a mountain bike, like what matters? Like I'm thinking things like a dropper post or do they need Mm. carbon wheels? Does the frame need to be carbon? How much does that stuff matter compared to road cycling?
2: If you're racing and you're at the front end of the race, everything matters and having really light wheels, they're going to roll faster. Yeah, for sure. But I think probably like the biggest bang for your buck performance things that you can do, for mountain biking is really having your tires dialed to the conditions and the tire pressure and your shock pressure, having that all dialed in really well. And then you could be on a, the world's crappiest aluminum bike, but if you have the, the right tires for the job at the right pressure that you're going to outride somebody on a much, much nicer bike mm. if, if they don't have that set up. So I think, you know, that's going to take some practice and some research and, and everything. So I wouldn't, yeah, if you're just getting into it, I wouldn't worry about having a carbon bike personally, or like the, electronic shifting.
1: The thing that I think about is you are a very good technical rider and very good technical riders can, and your bike doesn't have a dropper post, right? Your race bike.
2: No, I wish it did, but it doesn't. And but you
1: can still get away with it. Like for me, that is the one biggest thing that makes a difference on my mountain bike. Having having it or not having it, it it allows me to go down so much more technical terrain when I can drop that, that post down compared to... Mm-hmm. You might be able to do it anyway, but I need it, and I feel like for someone who's getting into it, it seems like a big expense. But man, it just makes riding the bike way easier. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, no, that's that's good insight. I just have never had one, so I just kind of grew up without oh, it. it.
1: It's life changing. You feel like you're on a dirt bike when that thing goes down. Oh, you just get I've so I've ridden low. one. Oh, okay, <laughs> not, I haven't owned one. <laughs> okay, got it, got it. Um, okay, well, those are all the questions we have for this week. Eric's racing Alcatraz this weekend. Paula soon will be racing Canadian. TT champs, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that when it happens. Um, oh,
2: we can't, we can't make it through this podcast without mentioning that we have friends in town and, oh, uh, it's, it's right, famous friends. So, famous friends, famous friends. Yes. Cause you gotta go follow everybody on the Instagram and watch we'll, the YouTubes cause it's going to be tons of fun.
0: Yeah. Ellie salt Host is here with her boyfriend, Zach, and they're training in Ben for the next two months. So Yeah, maybe we'll have her as a guest on the pod. But it's really nice to have another guest on the pod. We have different schedules, different coaches, but we're going to try to sync up as much as we can. And obviously, the motivation of going out and starting a ride together even is better than doing it solo. So I'm excited to have her here. She's we go way back. We trained together with Siri Lindley in like 2015, 16 kind of era, which was crazy because we were both racing ITU. And since then, we've switched to long chorus and we're much different people than we were back then. It's like really funny to look at pictures of us back in the day. Yeah. (laughs) We were just little and we didn't know what we were doing. But um, yeah, it's really fun. For Eric too, Zach is awesome and brings some lightheartedness to the group. Yeah, we love Zach. Mm -hmm. Yep. yeah. Cool. Well, thanks guys. Uh, Thank you, Nick, for running this 90-minute podcast with us.
2: (laughs) Before you go for a bike (laughs) ride, truly insane. Still got a ride. Still got a
1: ride. Okay, cool.
2: i will leave it to you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Ciao.
0: Chat with you next week. Bye.